we've got these two girls, innocent young girls, who are seen alive and well at half past ten on the Saturday night and who disappear into the night in and around the company of two strange men who are very well described. And then 12 hours later or so, their bodies are found and they have been brutally murdered, strangled. They have been sexually assaulted. The majority of their clothing, except Ellen's coat, has been removed. Anna Kenny, Francis Barker, Hilda McCauley, and Agnes Cooney were all young women who, between the early part of the summer of 1977 and early 1978, were all abducted and murdered in a very similar way to Helen and Christine. Tom, how are you this evening? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Very well. Tom, I was thinking it's good that we have a wee gap between recordings because I find myself getting quite wrapped up in the stories again, you know, and remembering the families and the stuff that goes on around these inquiries, which we can never overemphasize here. And I think we need to be careful always to be respectful to the people that went through these these events and, and had to suffer along with them without the benefit of our experience and being part of the professional system, if you like. So when we last spoke, we were talking about World's End, the World's End murders from the pub in Edinburgh. The two girls had gone missing overnight on the Saturday, and we got to the sad part where the first body had been, female body had been found on the beach, and we finished off with the discovery of another body on the farm. And what struck me after we'd finished was that we come to the hardest part, in a lot of instances of any death that the police deal with is the identification. And I noticed that you said the blonde girl and then you mentioned the bubbly coat because you're very conscious that at that point nobody had been identified. So take us from there, Tom, the discovery of the second body. It was the early afternoon of, the, of Sunday the 16th of October. The body of the dark-haired girl had been found in Gosford Bay in the late morning and uh, a local farmer had found the body of the blonde girl lying in a stubble field about five miles away on Coates Farm, lying on top of a, a Burberry coat. Now, of course, we strongly suspected, we believed that this was Christine and Helen. The descriptions were perfect, the, everything about them, and, and including the Burberry coat. But as you say, the, it's absolutely critical that you have best evidence. And unfortunately, that includes identification of the bodies by the next of kin or by someone uh, acting on behalf of the next of kin. Now, in some cases, you can use photographs, and, and in some cases where the body is very seriously deteriorated, you can use articles of clothing and even, even fingerprints or, or dental impressions. But in cases like this, you have to identify the bodies visibly. And that's one of the hardest parts, because by this time, the families of Helen and Christine had been told that bodies had been found, and they were very similar to Christine and Helen, etc. So they knew on one level that their girls had gone and were dead. But that's one thing. Seeing the body of a, a loved one, especially someone who has died violently, is the most tremendous shock. And it's something 
which I know that Helen's father, who I got to know very well in his later years, he never forgot that. Never forgot that. It was seared into his memory. And the man who took Helen's father to identify Helen was a good friend of mine, Dougie Kerr, who was a young detective sergeant like me. And he was allocated the task of taking Maureen Scott up to the mortuary to see his daughter, Helen. By this time, the ligatures, of course, had been removed very carefully, preserving the knots, etc. And the body had been arranged in as nice a way as possible. But you can't escape the fact that you've still got to draw down that sheet and look at your dead daughter, your dead 17-year-old daughter. And uh, Dougie Kerr never forgot that, never forgot, talks about it today. It's one of these times we've spoken before about sort of turning points, pivotal points where something happens which you never forget, and it can be a small thing or it can be a big thing. Well, for him, that was one of the things that, that marked his police service, and he still talks about it. And he still talks about the grief and the pity, just the condition of Marine Scott when he saw his daughter. Now, funnily enough, Marine Scott, Helen's dad, would go on to play a hugely significant role in the investigation going forward. He was one of the heroes of the story, and we'll come to that in a minute. Dougie Kerr also went on to be involved in the investigation, off and on as I was, for the rest of his police service. But that moment in time, he had to take Marine Scott up to see his daughter. There he was in the mortuary, seeing that lovely young girl, it was his daughter. They just said goodbye to the night before. And one of these reminders, as you part with your family, it's a timely reminder that you just never know. You just never know when it will be the last time. And so that was a very difficult time. So anyway, the bodies were identified. And then, of course, the second part of forensic recovery, it goes on and swabs are taken, nail clippings, scrapings from underneath the fingernails, hair. The bodies are wiped down with sellotape to get any hairs and fibres that may be on the bodies. There wasn't many clothes, of course, left. Uh, there was only Helen's coat as a major piece of clothing. But all of these things carefully preserved. And once again, Lester Nib, the young biologist, was there to undertake that, to see this through. Now, at this point in time, later on we realised we'd made a mistake. And the mistake was that both the girls had been transported separately to the mortuary and kept completely separate to avoid cross-contamination, but they had both been transported in the same vehicle because we only had one mortuary van. Now, of course, in 1977, that wasn't important, but much later, when we were getting thoroughly tested as to the potential for cross-contamination, that was something we thought, yeah, we thought we'd get everything right, but there you are, just when you think that, you can get the tiniest thing wrong. We, that was a Sunday night, and by that time we'd realised that the girls had been in the World's End pub because the, the families had directed us towards their pals, so we knew where they'd been the night before. And I remember, I was late shift, and I remember, by this time it was about seven o'clock at night, getting a, a big team of men, four or five detectives, four or five uniformed officers, up to the World's End, to take possession of the pub. And we literally did took possession of the pub in terms of forensic examination, but also, of course, witnesses, and particularly bar staff who may have been on the night before. That was a big effort to do that in the night. But the one thing I remember distinctly on that night was one of the first, he was, he was an old 
DO, been in the CID for many years. He came back from the mortuary, and in the main office was myself as a DS, and there was a DI. And he came up to the DI and he said to him, these guys have done this before. He said, and they'll do it again. And I always remember him saying that, because it was very clear to experienced eyes that we were dealing with something different here, something which was brutal and cold and callous and deliberate. And there was no chaos about the scene at all. This had been an execution uh, rather than a, a, a hot-blooded murder. These girls had been abducted, they'd been sexually abused, and then they had been murdered to remove the evidence. Their clothes had been taken, again, loss of forensic opportunity, and they had been bound and tied and strangled with their own clothing. Very, very organised, very cool, very brutal. And I think the old deal I was telling you about, I think he summed it up perfectly. He knew seeing this, that we're dealing with something very different. What about the two locations, Tom, where the girls were found? Was there any significance in the why separate? We later found out when we did a blood alcohol analysis that they had actually been killed at different times and that Christine had died first and she had been deposited and then Helen had been killed an hour or so later, roughly speaking. Yeah. yeah. Now, that, that we knew that was the case because Christine's belt had been used as part of the ligature on Helen. Christine was already away by the time Helen was killed. And of course, we didn't make a lot of that with Helen's family. The horror of that thought yes. was terrible. Interestingly, the deposition sites, carefully chosen, um, good lines of sight in either direction. So somebody dumping the body, we'd be able to see a car coming or going quite a long distance away in the of darkness, both like that. We never believed that they had been killed at these locations. We think the best chance of a location was probably a large car park called the Bent's Car Park, which was about a mile away from Christine's deposition site. And that was a place favoured for courting couples. We still think that perhaps that's where they were actually murdered. So there were several assumptions we could make that two men had been involved. They were seen with two men, and it would take at least two men to subdue them because they were big, strong, thick girls. And that certainly a motor vehicle well, had to be involved because we knew from the time of death that had been killed round about midnight or just after midnight on the Saturday night. Well, they'd been seen at half past 10 in the city centre at Hale and Harty. So the, that distance suggested that they'd been taken into a car. No struggle was seen. They'd been taken into a car, probably offered a lift, and then, of course, abducted and murdered. And that kind of hint, the thoroughness of any inquiry that probably bypasses Certainly people who watch murder programmes on television where it has to be solved within 59 minutes, they don't ever get a chance to think about the inquiries that are instigated at every juncture. For instance, we know a vehicle's involved, so somebody has to go and check all the stolen vehicles over the last 48 hours. Any road accidents, any incidents in other parts of the force or that area for the last 24 hours, Anything where these two men might have been involved in something else. I dare say your door-to-door -door inquiries encompass the other pubs in the area as well of World Trend to try and find these two guys. Pre-CCTV, I take it, Tom? Nothing at all. Pre-everything. There was no mobile phones. There was no CCTV. And thinking about it now, 
And looking at the old pictures, it really is a black and white world, a very different world. So there was two, you're absolutely right. I've often thought that I'd, I'd love to have served my career in midsummer because the murders there are dead easy to solve. <laughs> in, the, in the real world, in the real world, it's a little bit different than that. It was obvious from the start there was going to be a real test for us. And of course, we were a new force. We had one location, the World's End, which was in the city, and one in the county. And a couple of years earlier, they had been completely different forces with completely different systems and completely different methods about them. And they had not been fully conjoined at that point in time. In theory, they were, but in practice, they were not. Um, we had Lothians and Peebles, which looked after Eastern Midlothian. Uh, we had Edinburgh City, which was a big city force. And then we had the Borders, which is a completely different system of policing, a completely different way of living, and it still is. And good luck to them because it suits them well. So yes, it was a big challenge. Strathclyde was seven forces amalgamated. We only had three, but it was difficult enough. And this was going to be a, a big test uh, for that amalgamated force. We did it again not that long ago. I'm sure, actually, they are tripping over the same things as we tripped over. Because many things change about systems, but human behavior doesn't change. And loyalties do not change. And policing, in essence, for the most part, is a very local matter. The next day, there was a big, on the Monday, there was a big conference in the CID headquarters, and they decided what they were going to do. And it was decided there would be two distinct investigations. There'd be one down round about the deposition sites, doing searches and doing all that stuff, looking to try and find vehicles and, and witnesses who had maybe been around at that time of night, track down poachers. Poachers are a great source of information if you're in a country area. If you can get them on your side and you can trust them, because poachers and gamekeepers both out at all times of the night, and they're very observant. If you get them on your side, and there was a large estate down at Gosford, which was frequented by poachers around about the rivers and also the pheasants, and to try and track some of these people down, very good observers of vehicles, etc. So that was one part of it. And the World's End pub, of course, in the city was another distinct and large investigation. And there were two very interesting characters appointed to head both sides of the investigation. In the county, it was DCI Andrew Sutton, and he was a right old county DCI, very quiet and very, very considered. Doesn't waste words on anything, but he was one of these very deep thinking. And I came to have a great regard for him because he didn't say much, but when he did speak, it was worth listening to. Yeah, a very, very good guy with a long history of investigations in the county. Now, in the city, there was a guy called Bert Darling, who was my boss, or became my boss. And he was a real city slicker, big city detective, always in the best of suits, beautiful keyboard, lovely haircut, always the sharp, sharp tie. He just looked the part and always wore aftershave, plenty of aftershaves. You could smell them before you saw them. But Bert was actually a very clever guy, very cunning, very clever fellow. He was an expert in Pittman's shorthand, which he had learned, which he had learned only because lawyers could not read his notebook in the court. And he was so good at it. He was so good at it that when he left the police, he became a lecturer. Bert Darling's big thing, and I always remembered this. It was something I always remembered because I was an SIO too. He had a very good record for murders, and his mantra was the first 50. His theory was that the majority of murders 
visolutionally in the first 50 statements. And he would look at the first 50 statements and he would get somebody else to go away. I'm talking about the informant. I'm talking about the first person who's seen. I'm talking about next of kin. And that first 50 statements in emerging investigation, he would get people to go back and interview that first 50 again and again just to make sure. Because, and he was right, of course. He was absolutely right. And much later, I, I remember, I always remember him talking to the first 50 boys, the first 50, the first 50, solutionalized the first 50. He was a really interesting character, as a lot of them were, but he had a super record in solving serious crime, particularly murder. And it was a record he was very proud of. The DCIs in these days were very jealous of their records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And, well, it'll be the same to this day, Tom. It's a professional pride, isn't it? It's, uh... I, I suppose so. I suppose the major investigation team are sort of taking that away now because I don't think the divisional DCIs yeah, get yeah, the same exposure. Yeah, yeah. The thing about all these men, though, Simon, as you'll remember, and the people you were brought up with too, they had no professional training. They'd never been in any fancy courses. No. It was purely they'd come up through, they'd been detective sergeants, they'd been DIs, then they got to be SIOs, and they'd picked the best of what they saw. Yeah. And they had constructed a little package, which was their thing. Yeah. Now, I've no doubt Bert Darling had heard about the first 50 statements from somebody else way in the distant past. Yeah. And thought it was a good idea and carried it. And in turn, I did that. I carried it forward. <laughs> and everybody thought, well, not everybody, but some people thought it was my idea. You know, that's fine. <laughs> and you didn't tell them otherwise. It's very interesting. I've never heard it before, Tom, but it makes so much sense. I think I have heard it in other explained in other ways, like the first twenty-four hours, right? The, yeah. the yeah. first period yeah. of that, that first debriefing, and all the statements that you're looking at are the main players. It's the people that were spoken to at the locus by the uniforms who got the details. It's the family, it's the associates, it's the bar staff in the world's end. It's the it's whoever found the body, the farmer, whatever. It's the main players in that first 48 hours of the inquiry. And what he's saying is, let's not miss anything here, a tiny detail here that could prove to be the clincher, as it does here 37 years or however many years later. Well, it's interesting because his other theory was that witnesses often were better when they'd had a few hours to settle and reflect. And that quite often you took a statement from a key witness at a time they were anxious and stressed. And actually, far from being a good thing to catch people immediately when their recollection was fresh, sometimes it was better to go back and interview them the next day or the day after. And quite recently I saw a case, the the Rennie McRae case, which has just been solved after 46 years. There was a crucial piece of evidence missed in the early statements, and that was that an early witness had seen the car belonging to the suspect, parked beside the car belonging to the deceased in a quarry just about the time she disappeared. Now, that was not in the early statements. It was only when he was interviewed years later that he said it. Now, Bert Darling would have picked that up. See, that was crucial evidence. There was a very distinctive car. The culprit had a Volvo estate, and the deceased, Rennie McCray, had a BMW sporty saloon. So they were extremely distinctive vehicles. And the fact that they were together at that critical time, it was crucial evidence, which was there at the time, just not drawn out in the interviews. 
and I thought when I saw that, I thought, darling, you'd be spinning in your grave. <laughs> I had a slightly different theory that in all of these things you learn from other DOs as you as you moved through the job. But we had a and I remember with John Cherry and a robbery about the Barhead robbery, which was the biggest robbery in Scotland at its time. But I remember John and I going to and we were on the same wavelength. And we debated whether to go and see this guy. And it's quite late at night. But we decided to go and see him and rattle his cage. So we went to his door and rattled his cage and asked him a few superfluous questions. Got a look at him, crucially. Uh, got a look at his car, crucially. So we had sussed him out, his family. We had sussed it out in the five minutes or so that we were with him. But John and I knew that we were coming back. So we had got a very brief answer to a few questions from him that he thought was a statement, and we were away quite happy. What he didn't know was that we would be back within, I can't remember the time scale now, but we were back within 48 hours and it was a different story altogether. And then you had his initial response to Gage when you sat him down in the police station and started to take a real statement. There's so many subtle, very subtle things going on with interviews, isn't there, with how you deal with people. And that's what detectives are really all about is how to get to the truth. I suppose what you were doing there was you were just catching him off balance. Yeah, yeah. It was all about the balance, all about his poise, all about how secure he felt himself. If you can disentangle that by changing the dynamic, then you're halfway Uh, there. And he's thinking, in the last 24 hours, they must have learned something because they're coming back to see me again. What do they want this time? What have they been doing for 24 hours? Because the great thing about people is they think the whole world revolves around the edge. Um, so, yeah, and that, you're right. It just unsettles them and gives you a wee edge that you're always looking for. And basically what you're looking for is the truth, the body language, the eye contact, all that stuff going on. I loved it, Tom. Loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. And uh, and that's why I still write about it, because I find it fascinating. So in summary then, after that first 48 hours, we've got these two girls, innocent young girls, who are seen alive and well at half past ten on the Saturday night and who disappear into the night in and around the company of two strange men who are very well described. And then 12 hours later or so, their bodies are found and they have been brutally murdered, strangled. They have been sexually assaulted. The majority of their clothing, except Helen's coat, has been removed. And so we make a number of assumptions that at least two men were involved because they were seen with two men and because they couldn't be overpowered by one man with bootstrung girls that a vehicle was involved, that the motivation was sexual, that the people involved were strangers. They spoke with a strange accent. They had never been seen in the pub. And so we start fanning out from there, working from the centre outwards, from the deposition site. Have we honed in on these two strangers that they're seen chatting to about half past nine in the world's end? Have we honed in on them to some degree at this point? We have because we have put out appeals and, and the local press, I've got to say, were absolutely super... When you look at how disruptive the press can be now, or the 24-hour media can be now, and you look at the way that our local newspapers supported our investigation, it's actually quite remarkable. And I take every opportunity when I'm speaking about these murders to actually compliment the local press, because they did a super job of keeping the public informed and of driving the investigation forward. And an awful lot of people who were in the world's end that night came forward. So we were able to build a picture of who was there at what times and where they were sitting within the pub. And of course, the two young men 
did not come forward. And it wasn't the fact there were not locals because this was a national story. It was a kind of a death of innocence in a way. Because here was these two young girls had been spirited away and brutally murdered, abducted and murdered. It was the kind of thing that happened in Chicago, perhaps, right. but not in Edinburgh. Yeah. But not in Edinburgh. Or something that happened in the lawless areas of the west of Scotland. <laughs> I knew that was coming. But never in a cold, grey Edinburgh. And I still meet people who are about 64 now. So they were teenagers in 1977. And they said to me, do you know, my whole life was changed by that murder investigation. My whole social life was brought to an end. My father wouldn't let me get out. My dad insisted that my big brother came with me everywhere. I wasn't allowed to go into town on my own. It was a real turning point, which kind of like a mile marker in the history. And as I say, it's often been described to me as being the death of innocence. This could not happen here. And I remember some of the senior detectives said, uh, we can't let this go unanswered. We've got to resolve it. What, what I meant to say was I, I talked about the two DCIs, but overall in charge of the investigation was uh, Detective Superintendent George McPherson. He was called Big Mac. He was Big Mac before the hamburger <laughs> came out. And he was Big Mac because there was another George McPherson in the CID who was Wee Mac. <laughs> but Big Mac was a big fellow. And he'd been a very good singer in his younger years. He'd been quite famous as a bass baritone singer. But, um, he was a figure of fear and respect. He was a big man and he was gruff. And he did not suffer fools gladly. And so he was placed in overall command. Actually, again, it's interesting. You've got these three characters. You've got the county DCI. You've got Bert Darling, who looks like he's just stepped out of a tailor's window. And you've got Big Mac, who is very gruff and doer. But actually, all of them had the unique qualities and fine qualities which they brought to the table. Somewhat different, but they all brought experience to the table and were all highly experienced. I mean, between them, they must have had 60 years between them of criminal investigation experience. So Big Mac was there to coordinate the two, the two sides of the inquiry as we went forward. Now, we got very little from the scenes, we've got the forensics, obviously, but there were very few sightings. It was a quiet time of night. Nobody had been around and no, nobody saw anything. It was all that significant. It was the usual white vans and blue cars and all that stuff. There was nothing really that looked red hot. In the World's End pub, likewise, we managed to track down the majority of people who were there, but there were still people who were missing, particularly these two strangers. And of course, the description led us to believe that they might be soldiers because of the short hair, which was very uncommon at that time. And, uh, and of course, Edinburgh had a large military garrison, the castle, Redford Barracks, Draghorn, and soldiers at that time were constantly moving about between the UK, Germany, Cyprus, Ireland. And so tracking down these all these squaddies who came and went in the world's end pub was, uh, was a major job. I know from experience that uh, trying to find out from the military where their personnel are at any one time can be an onerous task. I had to get the Frisco involved to help me in one inquiry. John, before we wrap up here for now, I'd just like to open it up a wee bit. We spoke about Robert Black and his horrible crimes in the 80s. We've covered that extensively in other podcasts. And I'm thinking here that this MO of being in or around pubs as they come out at night, pubs and clubs, uh, busy areas, 
people moving about. Part of your inquiry would be to look for similar crimes across the nation, no doubt, certainly across Edinburgh and across the Central Belt. Was there anything to indicate that whoever had committed this, the perpetrators, uh, had been active prior to this? There were some very similar crimes which had been committed in and around Glasgow. Anna Kenny, Francis Barker, Hilda Macaulay and Agnes Cooney were all young women who between the early part of the summer of 1977 and early 1978 were all abducted and murdered in a very similar way to Helen and Christine. And right from the start, not only did we make the association, but the press made the association. Yeah. And we were very quickly in touch with our colleagues in Strathclyde Police at that time to see what we could learn about these other murders. But it was extremely difficult. Now, in hindsight, you should say, right, you should link these murders from the start. There was a conference in 1980 in Perth Police Station. No minutes exist, but... I've spoken to people who were attending it, where they talked about all of these murders and the SIOs gave a brief summary and they made a decision of whether they would link them or whether they would not. And they decided not to. And they decided not to, I think, for quite good reasons, really. One of the reasons, the principal reason, was that they knew full well that their admin system, the old card and deck system, which you and I have discussed before, that was not adequate for the linking of all these murder investigations. Now, as well as that, each of the forces did not want to give up responsibility and ownership for its own investigations. There was a third factor too, which was unsaid, unspoken, but was very, very clear. And we have to talk about it in the context of these investigations because it haunted that period of criminal investigation and that was the ghost of Bible John. Yeah. And what that had done to policing uh, throughout Scotland in the decade just before we're talking about. And there was a very real concern and fear that if we linked these murders, we would set a lot of hairs running of public panic, misinformation, and the story and the press would start driving the investigation. And it would become out of control, out yeah. of our control, yeah. which is exactly what had happened in the Bible John case. And of course, once you link them, you can't unlink them. It's done. You can always link them if they're unlinked. But once you make that decision, there's no going back on it, and that could cause horrific problems further on. Tom, I'm going to wrap up there, but I'm going to wrap up on a, on a lighter note. You were talking about the pedigree, the experience, the the professionalism of the SIOs and the officers running these inquiries. And one of the victims that you mentioned there when you're summing up, I was involved in that murder inquiry, but I was only about a fortnight in the job at the time. So I think we'll start there the next time we come and have a look at a murder inquiry from a rookie perspective. That's very interesting. I've got some serious questions for you. This <laughs> is what you did. <laughs> Great stuff, Tom. And thanks again tonight. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks. Take care. You like Simon? Bye now. Next time on Crime Time Inc. We just had to have the patience and we just had to wait for science to come to our rescue. I've often described it as being like these people that found the Rosetta Stone. 
you know, in ancient Egypt, and it had a hieroglyph on it, and they knew it was what was on it was really, really important, and they couldn't read it. Yeah. And they kept it for years and years and years until somebody finally decoded it and read it. Well, that's exactly what Helen's Cove was. And eventually in 2004, he got a call back and said, yes, we've looked at this, and actually there are two male profiles here. There's the one you discovered a long time ago, but we've got another one. We've actually found three profiles on the coat. We've found Helen's DNA, which her coat. We've found the anonymous man who we've been looking for all these years, and we've now found another profile. We've matched that against the database, and bang, Angus Robertson Sinclair. <laughs>